Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, here's some news. You can now listen to our show and its four seasons worth of archives ad-free on Amazon Music. This is an Apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. In the year 1846, Ignaz Semmelweis was the chief obstetrician at the largest maternity hospital in the world. He had completed his undergrad at the University of Pest before earning a doctorate at the University of Vienna. Now, the Hungarian doctor oversaw two separate wards at Vienna General Hospital, one led by doctors, the other by midwives. At this time in history, across much of the world, the vast majority of pregnant women delivered their children at home. In the late 18th century, under 1% of UK women delivered in maternity hospitals. By the year 1900, still only 5% of American women would choose to give birth in hospital. Home births were the norm. In fact, prior to the 19th century, the term home birth didn't exist, as having a baby at home, surrounded by female relatives and likely a midwife, was standard care. 
But as the modernization of hospitals and early iterations of pain management began to change the conversation around childbirth, some women began opting for doctor-led births. The thinking being that obstetricians, male doctors specializing in the care of pregnant women, would provide superior outcomes for women and their babies. But as Dr. Semmelweis analyzed the outcomes of the women who gave birth in his hospital, he realized that wasn't the case. Women in hospitals all across Europe were dying at alarming rates following childbirth. The cause? A mysterious sudden onset of symptoms doctors dubbed puerperal fever, or childbed fever. Within 24 hours of giving birth, mothers were developing raging fevers, pale skin, and painful abscesses, leading to near unavoidable death. It was so prevalent that childbed fever became the number two leading cause of death for women, second only to tuberculosis. It was so common at that time that physicians resignedly wrote it off as simply the way it was, nothing to worry about. But Semmelweis was worried about it, so he took a closer look at the data. Semmelweis compared the mortality rates of the women who gave birth in his midwifery ward to the women who gave birth in his doctor-led ward, and there he found a glaring discrepancy. Under the care of the midwives, 2% of women were dying after childbirth. In his doctor-staffed ward, that percentage jumped to 18. 18% of the women under the care of his doctors were dying. Some of the perceived causes of childbed fever at the time included bad hospital air, overcrowding, and spontaneous sickness due to the onset of lactation. But one by one, Semmelweis debunked those theories. The ventilation system in the doctor's ward was the same as that of the midwifery ward. The midwifery ward was more crowded than its physician-led counterpart, and spontaneous lactation sickness didn't explain why breastfeeding women who gave birth at home or under the care of the midwives remained healthy. So Semmelweis looked at other factors, the diets and lifestyles of the women, but those were consistent regardless of the ward. So he looked at different religious affiliations, but again, the correlation wasn't there. So Semmelweis looked at the positions in which the women gave birth, on their backs, on their sides, and still no patterns emerged. Women in Austria at the time were not allowed to attend medical school. So Semmelweis wondered if pregnant women's, quote, embarrassment giving birth in front of male doctors may have been leading to spontaneous illness. When a woman died of childbed fever, a priest would ring a bell up and down the halls of the hospital. So Semmelweis wondered if that bell was scaring the laboring women to death. So he put an end to that ritual. 
But as word began to spread that doctor-assisted births were more dangerous than midwife-assisted births, laboring women who were rushed to the physician's ward began begging doctors to be admitted into the midwifery ward instead. Statistically, it had become safer to give birth in the street than under the care of doctors. Semmelweis said everything was inexplicable. Everything was in question. The only unquestionable reality was that women were dying. Then one day, one of his male doctors fell ill. One morning at the hospital morgue, a doctor was performing a routine autopsy when a medical student accidentally punctured the doctor's finger with a scalpel. 24 hours later, that doctor developed a raging fever, pale skin, and painful abscesses. Soon after, he died. It was determined he'd succumb to childbed fever. That was odd, because that doctor was neither pregnant nor a woman. But upon examination, Semmelweis discovered the doctor had been performing an autopsy on one of the women who had died of childbed fever when his finger was cut. Huh. So Semmelweis pulled up the schedules of all the doctors under his supervision. In the morning, they would perform autopsies. Then, they would go straight to the maternity ward and spend the afternoon delivering babies. No gloves during, no hand-washing in between. Now, as cringeworthy as that sounds to present-day ears, wearing gloves and hand-washing was not standard practice in 1847, even for doctors nor was disinfecting their surgical instruments. In fact, 1847 predated germ theory of disease, which explained things like bacteria, by nearly two decades. Without the understanding of germs and particles, it was normal for doctors to go from patient to patient, from patient to corpse, and corpse to patient, without washing their hands. Semmelweis was stumped. Then he realized, over in the midwifery ward, zero autopsies were performed. And therein lay the first undeniable correlation since Semmelweis began his investigation. There was something being transferred between the bodies in the morgue and the women in the delivery room by way of the doctors tending to both. Semmelweis didn't know how it worked or what actually was being transferred. But for now, he'd call it cadaverous particles. Semmelweis felt intense guilt, having performed several autopsies himself before delivering several babies He wondered if he, too, might have contributed to this epidemic, this horrific loss of life. So Semmelweis decided to test his cadaverous particle theory, and he ordered his doctors to wash their hands 
and their instruments in chlorinated lime solution between each patient. Now, what Dr. Semmelweis didn't really know was that chlorine is one of the most effective disinfectants. He just figured it was strong enough to get rid of the smell left behind on the hands of the doctors who just performed the autopsies. And perhaps if the smell was gone, the cadaverous particles would also disappear. Within six months of his hand-washing policy, the death rate among pregnant women at his hospital dropped from 18.7% to 4.5%. By the one-year mark, it had dropped to 1.2%, less than that of the midwife ward. For two full months, they reported zero deaths from childbed fever. Fatalities had dropped by over 90%. So Semmelweis implemented his hand-washing policy in the midwifery ward as well, and fatalities there dropped from 2% to 13 The results were undeniable. His method was saving women's lives. Semmelweis couldn't wait to share his findings with other doctors. But other doctors didn't share his enthusiasm. Many doctors were skeptical of the fact there could be enough matter left on one's hands after performing an autopsy to transmit sickness. Others believed cadaverous particles was too casual a hypothesis, more superstitious than scientific. And until Mr. Semmelweis could provide evidence for his theory, it was not to be taken seriously. One doctor in Prague called his idea naive. His former boss advised Semmelweis, quote, keep what is old, for that is good, urging his former pupil to study less and obey more, adding, he had no need for learned men. But even those who didn't resignedly pass puerperal fever off as simply the way it was rejected the chief of obstetrics' findings because though deaths declined 90%, there were still some cases that remained, inexplicable cases by Semmelweis's logic. But the prevailing reaction was insult. Doctors were healers, and it was disrespectful for Semmelweis to imply otherwise. A gentleman's hands, they said, cannot carry disease. When Semmelweis's position at Vienna General Hospital came up for renewal, his contract was terminated. When the negativity surrounding his theory spread to other institutions, Semmelweis was also dismissed as a private lecturer on obstetrics. Semmelweis was confused. His theory saved hundreds of lives and had the power to save thousands more. The proof was in the numbers. Out of work, he started passing out flyers on the street urging women to demand their doctors wash their hands until he was essentially run out of Vienna. Back 
Back home in Budapest, the only job Semmelweis could find was an unpaid position in obstetrics at a smaller university hospital. There, his superior would call him crazy and unstable, but there he would continue to treat women for six years. And when that same superior left his post, Semmelweis replaced him. His first order of business? To implement hand-washing and instrument-washing. Within months, pregnant women's mortality rates at his hospital dropped to under 1%, while other hospitals in Europe, including Vienna General, remained steady at 15%. But the vitriol never ceased. One medical journal in Vienna wrote that it was time Semmelweis stop the nonsense about the chlorine handwash. So Semmelweis decided to publish his own works, explaining and defending his theory. In 500 pages, he outlined his growing anecdotal evidence while simultaneously attacking his critics. He called doctors unwilling to wash their hands murderers and partners in a massacre. But prominent and influential German scientists rejected his doctrine. In the years that followed, alongside his singular focus on childbed fever, Semmelweis developed severe depression. It's speculated he may have also begun exhibiting signs of dementia. His wife and trusted colleagues insisted Semmelweis receive mental health treatment. But upon entering an institution, Semmelweis put up a fight and was forcefully handled by guards. And in the struggle, his hand was cut. Within 24 hours, Semmelweis began developing a raging fever, pale skin, and painful abscesses. And within two weeks... He had succumbed to a variation of the very illness he'd spent his life's work trying to prevent. Ignaz Semmelweis was just 47 years old. A funeral was held for Semmelweis, but only a handful of people attended. When the Hungarian Association of Physicians delivered its annual commemorative address in honor of doctors who passed the prior year, Semmelweis went unmentioned. He was replaced at the university hospital, and his successor reversed his handwashing policies. The maternal death rate jumped sixfold. There were no questions and no objections. But over the following years, something interesting happened. In the 1860s, a French scientist named Louis Pasteur discovered that microscopic germs, invisible to the naked eye, caused most human infection and disease. Disproving what was previously understood, that disease was brought about spontaneously within the body. Soon after that, German doctor Robert Koch would prove that specific germs caused specific disease, isolating the bacteria behind tuberculosis and cholera. 
germ theory of disease would be regarded as the single most important discovery in the history of medicine, leading to developments in disease prevention and treatment, like vaccines, antibiotics, and a widespread public understanding that hygiene, namely hand-washing, plays a massive part in preventing the spread of infection. Antisepsis measures were introduced into hospitals, effectively ending childbed fever. And 20 years after his death, doctors and scientists began lauding Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis as the first healthcare worker to have demonstrated that scrubbing up between procedures and sterilizing medical instruments saves lives. Three hospitals, one in Hungary and two in Austria, would be named after Dr. Semmelweis, and the university hospital where Semmelweis worked prior to his death would change its name from the University of Pest to Semmelweis University. Semmelweis's body was transported from Vienna back to his birthplace of Budapest, where his childhood home was converted into the Semmelweis Museum of Medical History 100 years after his death. In March 2020, Google put out a special iteration of its landing page logo in honor of Semmelweis to encourage people to wash their hands in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis... The doctor once called crazy, naive, and disrespectful to doctors would go down in history as the savior of mothers, the pioneer of antiseptic policy, and the father of handwashing. We'll be right back. Hey, did you know Apostrophe has a YouTube channel? You can listen to We Regret to Inform You and Under the Influence anytime. Just tap the link in this episode's description. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When Robert Goddard was a boy in the late 1880s, he was prone to illness, bronchitis, colds. The sickly kid spent so much time in bed, he fell two years behind at school. But from the comfort of his PJs, young Goddard took his education into his own hands. He spent those long stretches alone, bird-watching, studying the stars through his telescope, reading H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, Isaac Newton's Laws of Motion, and, when he was feeling up to it, conducting experiments in the backyard. Like testing whether holding a piece of charged battery zinc made him jump higher, or designing his own hydrogen balloon. Then one brisk October day in New England... 17-year-old Goddard climbed an old cherry tree to prune its dead branches. He looked down at the fields around him, all golden. Then he looked up at the sky. Clear as day, he could see Mars. And there, perched upon a bough, the teen began to daydream. He imagined a device that looked small, but that had the power to ascend from the meadow below him all the way to Mars above. How incredible that would be. Goddard said he was a different boy when he descended the cherry tree that day. He was a boy whose existence had purpose. By his final year of high school, Goddard had more than caught up to his peers. At his graduation, he was quoted as saying, It is difficult to say what is impossible, for the dream of yesterday is the hope of today and the reality of tomorrow. Not bad for an 18-year-old. After high school, Goddard enrolled at the Wooster Polytechnic Institute, a private research university where he'd studied the sciences. As his schooling progressed, Goddard became more and more interested in space, and rocketry specifically. This was around the year 1906. At that time, the idea of rockets as they related to outer space was not yet part of the collective consciousness. In fact, two centuries out from Newton's law of motion, 
The biggest advancement in space exploration was a research paper by French theorist Konstantin E. Tsiolkovsky. In it, Tsiolkovsky theorized that rockets would be the only vehicles able to fly in outer space. That paper was published in 1903, the same year the Wright brothers successfully flew the first airplane for 12 straight seconds. Airplanes were only just getting off the ground. The idea of rocketry was, pardon the pun, completely out of this world. In his third year of university, Goddard decided to take the idea of rockets out of the research papers and into the real world. When he attempted to fire a gunpowder rocket, in the basement of the school's physics building. When Goddard emerged from the cloud of smoke, he, surprisingly, wasn't expelled. Instead, the school began taking a deeper interest in his work. Goddard started writing papers in the hopes of getting his findings published. He wrote one on the use of radioactive materials to propel rockets through interplanetary space— but every magazine rejected him. That is, until Scientific American agreed to publish another piece of his on using gyroscopes to stabilize airplanes. In 1908, Goddard graduated from college with a Bachelor of Science. Next, he'd earn his Master's and PhD in Physics. His focus? That rockets are the best way to escape Earth's gravity. And, what if we used liquid fuel to power them? After earning his PhD, Goddard became a fellow at Princeton University, where he continued his research studying the Earth's atmosphere. That is, until 1913, when he contracted tuberculosis and the perpetually sickly kid was forced to take extended leave. But, true to form, he didn't waste that time. Goddard filed two patents from his sickbed, one for a multi-stage rocket, and another for a rocket powered by liquid fuel. Following his recovery, Goddard became an assistant professor of physics at his alma mater, Clark University, where he became even more fired up about his liquid-fueled rocket idea. Goddard learned that rockets fueled by gunpowder were difficult to control and didn't burn efficiently. Liquid fuel would, theoretically, allow more control over the fuel's burn rate, allowing rockets to fly more accurately. Goddard soon became known around the halls of his university as the prof whose nose was so deep in a book, he forgot to close his umbrella as he walked down the halls to his classroom. Then in 1916, he conducted his most significant experiment to date. Up until that time, it was thought that rocket engines needed air to push against in order to propel forward. But Goddard's latest work proved that rocket engines didn't push against the air, that the forward motion occurred when the engine ignited, burned fuel, and pushed exhaust out of the back of the rocket. 
that force propelled it forward. It was Newton's third law of motion that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. This was significant because there's no air in outer space. What Goddard proved was that a rocket could produce thrust even in a vacuum, proving that spaceflight was, in fact, possible. Over the following years, Goddard's experiments became more and more expansive and expensive. So he sought sponsorship. He approached the Smithsonian, sharing his hypothesis that a rocket was capable of reaching altitudes of over 350 kilometers, or 217 miles. And with that intrigue, he secured himself a five-year grant for $5,000 to fund two mechanics and one assistant. Over those five years, Goddard became a full professor at the university. And in 1920, the Smithsonian published his findings in a piece titled, A Method of Reaching Extreme Altitudes. In the report, Goddard outlined a number of strategies to help rockets escape the gravitational pull of Earth, studying the upper atmosphere's chemical composition, electrical properties, temperatures, and densities, adding that maybe, accounting for all of those factors, a rocket could even reach the moon someday. On the morning of January 12, 1920, Goddard picked up his daily Boston Herald. But before he could even settle in with a cup of coffee, his eyes caught the front page headline. New rocket devised by Professor Goddard may hit face of the moon. Goddard was shocked. Frankly, he was a private guy, completely unaccustomed to attention, doing research in a field he didn't expect would ever really interest the general public. Turns out, Goddard's piece drew major attention, but less so on his experiments or his latest understanding of atmospheric pressure. It was almost entirely focused on Goddard's theoretical comments about reaching the moon, a little context from the Smithsonian. In 1920, the latest major aviation milestone was the first non-stop flight across the Atlantic Ocean. Even the idea of an unmanned rocket reaching, quote, extreme altitudes was inconceivable. The only rockets average citizens knew of at that time were the fireworks they enjoyed over 4th of July weekend. To suggest a rocket could not only reach outer space, but reach the moon, sparked intense curiosity from many major publications. For others, it sparked intense outrage. Many thought Goddard was a madman who wanted to shoot rockets at the moon. Then on January 13, 1920, one day after the Boston Herald's moony piece, the New York Times published an editorial titled, A Severe Strain on Credulity. 
The Times wrote, and I quote, Professor Goddard, with his chair in Clark College, does not know the relation of action to reaction and of the need to have something better than a vacuum against which to react. Adding, Goddard seems to lack the knowledge ladled out daily in high schools. Criticism from other sources questioned whether one man could really account for all the complex variables associated with rocketry, like high-altitude winds and friction, while many focused on broader questions about what the greater purpose was of sending anything into space at all, manned or unmanned, moon or no moon. Goddard began publishing rebuttals to each of these claims in various popular science magazines, but he was widely mocked as naive and ignorant, and Goddard's attempts to salvage his name were mostly drowned out by more attacks. Goddard got back to work. Undeterred, he decided to take his theories off the page and into the real world. And one day, at his aunt and uncle's farm in Auburn, Massachusetts, Goddard built and fired the world's first liquid-fueled rocket. The 10-foot rocket flew 41 feet in the air in 2.5 seconds, before crashing 184 feet away. So Goddard kept going. With another grant from the Smithsonian, he built bigger, better, louder rockets. So loud, Goddard's aunt and uncle's neighbors called the police, mistaking his latest rocket crash for a plane crash, and prompting one newspaper to pose the question to Goddard, How close to the moon did you get this time? Goddard's next test led only to a fire, and another newspaper headline. This time it said, Moon Rocket Man's Test Alarms Whole Countryside. But that headline caught the attention of someone who'd recently alarmed the whole world by flying across the whole Atlantic. One day at the farm, a man showed up on Goddard's aunt and uncle's front porch. His name was Charles Lindbergh. Lindbergh was the man who had just completed the first solo nonstop flight from New York to Paris. He had recently broadened his studies from aeroplanes to aeronautics. And upon hearing there was a man in Massachusetts launching homemade rockets in a field... He made the trip. Lindbergh and Goddard sat on the porch and talked. Then they ate chocolate cake, and by the time Lindbergh left, he was headed straight to Harry Guggenheim to tell the businessman, philanthropist, and godfather of flight there was something interesting going on out there in Auburn. Lindbergh's glowing endorsement of Goddard earned him four years' worth of funding from Guggenheim for a total of $100,000. On July 17, 1929, Goddard launched a rocket that flew 90 feet in the air in 5.5 seconds. The headline the next day read, 
Moon Rocket misses target by 238,799 and a half miles. And the fire marshal prohibited Goddard from performing any more rocket tests in the state of Massachusetts. Goddard moved his test site to New Mexico, a place his wife later said rockets could rise or crash or even explode without wear and tear on neighbors' nerves. There, his next rocket would rise 2,000 feet at a speed of 500 miles per hour, a huge leap forward. The next one would fly only 200 feet before promptly crashing. But Goddard refused to see it as a step backwards. He called what headlines perceived as failures valuable negative information, adding, It was frustrating, but never a failure. In March of 1935, Goddard's latest rocket flew 4,800 feet in 15.5 seconds. In March of 1937, it reached an impressive 9,000 feet in 22.3 seconds. Next, Goddard began working on a gyroscopic stabilizer to control the course of the rocket. He had developed cooling mechanisms, high-powered fuel pumps, onboard parachutes, and attached a nozzle for efficiency and thrust. Soon, his rocket would reach 2.7 kilometers, or 1.6 miles, into the air. But as Goddard's rockets flew higher, and with more and more precision, he got the sense he was being watched. The Second World War had begun, and Germany, upon hearing of Goddard's advancements, sent spies to New Mexico to follow the professor's progress. One spy sent word back to Germany that, quote, Goddard had made substantial breakthrough in the development of rocket-propelled missiles. And Germany promptly purchased Goddard's now 26 patents for 35 cents each, directly from the U.S. Patent Office. At the time, Germany was pouring millions into the development of rockets. Meanwhile, Goddard's own country displayed zero curiosity in his discoveries. So in the year 1940, Goddard, together with Harry Guggenheim, traveled to Washington, D.C. to appeal to the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force about the potential of rocketry. But there was, quote, no interest at all. Then... On August 9th, 1945, Robert Goddard passed away. The following month, World War II would come to an end. After the war, the United States brought over 400 German scientists to the U.S., to tap their incredible knowledge of rocketry. When prompted on their expertise, one reportedly said, why don't you ask your own Dr. Goddard? By the time the U.S. entered the space race in 1958, 
billions of dollars were being funneled into the U.S. space program. The Americans would utilize Goddard's experiments, his designs, his calculations, and his discoveries to build its National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, awarding Goddard's estate $1 million for the use of his over 200 patents, the equivalent of $10 million today. And NASA named its first space complex the Goddard Space Flight Center. Almost 50 years after the New York Times published its scathing editorial accusing Goddard of being uneducated and of misunderstanding Newton's third law of motion, it published a retraction in the form of a brief item under the headline, A Correction, stating, Further investigation and experimentation have confirmed it is now definitely established that a rocket can function in a vacuum as well as in the atmosphere. The Times regrets the error. That retraction ran on July 17, 1969, as Apollo 11 made its way to the moon. And Dr. Robert Goddard, the scientist once said to be lacking the basic knowledge ladled out daily in high schools, would go down in history as the father of modern rocketry. every point in history, the world was in dire need of new thinking. Yet, the world fears change. Rejection is automatic. It's the great contradiction of the human condition, because new ideas propel us forward. But new ideas also create anxiety, uncertainty, and the need to cling to the familiar. That herd mentality, in turn, heaps criticism and ridicule on the person who dares to champion new thinking. In the stories today, both Semmelweis and Goddard were dismissed as unstable, naive, ignorant, crazy, lacking in credibility, and, in Goddard's case, functioning on a high school level of knowledge. This kind of rejection actually has a name, the Semmelweis reflex, which is defined as the tendency to reject new evidence or new knowledge because it contradicts established norms, beliefs, or paradigms. Yet both of these men eventually changed the course of history and sadly didn't live to see it. It underscores how difficult it is to present a new idea. It takes courage, perseverance, and fortitude. The rejections will come from powerful sources, the gatekeepers, your peers, and even the press. When that happens, it's so easy to retreat. Goddard was trying to convince people that rockets could actually go to the moon. Semmelweis was just trying to get doctors to wash their hands. One, a huge intergalactic goal, the other, the tiniest of requests both earth-shattering in their importance. 
Rejection doesn't mean your idea is bad. It often means your idea is shaking the foundations of the establishment. So many of us stop trying when we get powerful resistance. And that's a shame, because your idea just might change the world. When the rejections start to pile up and your armor gets scratched, pierced, and dented, remember what Robert Goddard said. Every vision is a joke until someone accomplishes it. Your first rocket may only go 41 feet in your aunt's backyard, but that doesn't mean one day it won't go 1.2 billion feet to the moon. Never, ever give up. Aiming at the stars both literally and figuratively is a problem to occupy generations, so that no matter how much progress one makes, there is always the thrill of just beginning. Robert Goddard The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in our Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. We don't regret to inform you. Our producer is Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefebvre and Ari Posner. Tunes provided by APM Music. The major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. You can follow our network on social at apostrophepod for behind-the-scenes content, to learn a little more about our other shows, or to comment who you'd like us to reject next. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm being completely honest now, okay? Homelessness makes me uncomfortable. But then I think, at least it's not sleeping on the sidewalk with everything I own uncomfortable. Don't let homelessness assumptions get in the way of homelessness solutions.
go to canadacandoit.ca. Help the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness.